I was asked to talk a little bit about my first root teacher, uh, Philip Kaplow, Roshi Philip Kaplow. Um, here's begin with a couple of few quotes. If you fall into poverty, live that way without grumbling. Then your poverty will not burden you. Likewise, if you are rich, live your riches. All this is the functioning of Buddha nature. In short, Buddha nature has the equality of infinite adaptability. Another quote. A Zen master, when asked where he would go after he died, replied, to hell, for that's where the help is needed most. And a third quote. To suppress the grief, the pain, is to condemn oneself to a living death. Living fully means feeling fully. It means becoming completely one with what you're experiencing and not holding it at arm's length. So Philip Kaplow um, was my called root teacher, first teacher, person who introduced me to the Dharma. And to begin anything about history, I have a sign on my door that says, your memory is not accurate and may be entirely wrong. So what a 20-year-old guy 50 years ago saw in this person is very different than what a 50-year-old person would see with this person. was very different than what a 70-year-old person would see with the same person. So, you know, as I often say about these things, we make it all up. Because the way memory is stored is it's stored in little, stitch, little snitch, snitches, little, little bits. And then the mind very quickly fills in the, the surrounding area. So Roshi Kaplow was born in 1912. I don't know this is my direct experience, but this is what Wikipedia says. <laughs> he was a bookkeeper in his high school. So that means that he was, he was uh, 20 during the Great Depression, right? The, at the depths of the Great Depression in this country, 1931-32, and it took actually until almost till the war for the Depression to end. But he was a bookkeeper in high school, then he studied law, and then he became a court reporter for the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials and the Tokyo War Crimes Trials. So those of you who are younger, after World War II, when the Allies had, had won a very significant victory, they held big trials about the, the events that had happened in, the, um, in Germany, with the concentration camps, with just the, the human rights violations, with the Japanese, with the March of Bataan, and the rape of Nanking, and uh, just, just every, uh, every grievance came up. And so they put all these people on trial, and they had somebody then, because they did recording devices weren't like they are now, they had somebody who actually typed out everything that went on, typed a transcript of the trial. So he had a company that did that. So that means he was present after the war during these people talking about these horrific things that had happened, uh, both in Asia and in Germany. And he used to say that he, one of the things that impressed him most was that there was a very big difference in the cultural approaches to these trials. He said the the Germans often were very defensive and had a great, you know, 
it was our job, we were, we were right, we, we were following orders. And he said, the Japanese are much more, this is our karma, this is, we take responsibility for our, our life. And, <clears throat> and he said that, that that difference in attitude impressed him greatly and partly contributed to his interest in Dharma and Buddhism. So after um, he was in Tokyo, 19, probably 45, 50, somewhere in there. And then he met D.T. Suzuki. D.T. Suzuki is one of the first people to actually bring Zen Buddhism from Japan into this country. He was a translator, a scholar, and he started teaching at Columbia University in New York. So Roshi Kaplow, back in the 50s, went to D.T. Suzuki's lectures on, uh, on Zen and Dharma. And he got so inspired that in 1953, he went to Japan. Um, <clears throat> because he was, he was interested in, in, in the direct, real experience. He'd read all these things Suzuki Roshi had translated, and one of the things that Suzuki Roshi emphasized was not kind of classic Dharma that talks about Theravadan uh, approaches or or Zogchen approaches, but he talked a lot about enlightenment, a lot about koans, a lot about awakening. And Roshi Kaplow was filled with the aspiration to become enlightened. So he went to uh, Japan, and after several adventures, ended up at Hoshinji Monastery, which is still a very, very active functioning monastery right now, um, with Dayan Harada Roshi, different Harada Roshi than the Harada Roshi we talk about. And, um, and he was there at Hoshinji Monastery for three years. Um, and he was in Japan for 13 years. And he was ardent for awakening. Roshi Kaplow tells this story. A young person came to a venerable master and asked, how long will it take to reach enlightenment? The master said, Ten years. The young person blurted, that long? The master said, no, no, I was mistaken. It will take you 20 years. <laughs> the young man said, 20 years? The master said, come to think of it, maybe 30. So he went to Japan with great ardor, was in Hoshinji Monastery, one of the very first Westerners to actually end up in these monasteries. He was at Hoshinji for three or four years, and then he practiced with Yasutani Roshi um, in uh, Kyoto, or Osaka, I forgot, uh, Tokyo, for the next um, you know, nine years or so. So while he was there, he collected a whole bunch of teachings of Yasutani Roshi, some things that he had translated that he felt that were inspiring, some letters that had been around by uh, Basui and <clears throat> other people. And he put them all together in a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And it was one of the very first books that was really talked about the practice of Zen rather than the philosophy of Zen, rather than interesting stories about Zen. He really talked about his direct struggles and, and awakening and and so it became very popular. It was published in 1965, and in 1966 he came to 
the States and was uh, invited to begin teaching in Rochester, New York. Uh, <clears throat> and so they, they, they found a place, they got a place together, they actually, things prospered, they grew out of it very quickly, and they found a place at Seven Arnold Park. And they had just renovated Seven Arnold Park when they had a big fire, and it just burnt the whole building, the whole center of the building was burned up. Um, so just after they had gotten this new building, renovated it, went into flames. Um, and that's when I showed up, is the, the summer after the fire. And I came, I visited in 1968, and I moved to Rochester in June 9th, 1969. I remember the, uh, we were driving into Rochester and the sun was just rising, like six in the morning. We were just, it was just rising and it was sort of bright and red. And I kind of said, this is a pivotal moment of my life. <clears throat> and you know, you say those things, you never know what that means. Um, so I was there in 1969 to about 1975. And the whole time I was there, I was basically put on jobs of plumbing and electrical work, fixing things. Uh, the same, same kind of thing I do now. <clears throat> I was in charge of the Zendo. Um, in 1968, Philip Capelow was 56 years old. So he started, he started, like he started Great Vow at 56. And then um, I came at 20, moved in. And it was a very vital, very dynamic place. Here is something from the New York Times about that era. This was written in 1979. Today, Roshi Kapilo sees more older people moving toward Buddhism. In the 60s, it was mainly the young. They were disillusioned and, and in despair. Many of them on the verge of suicide, he says. They felt the establishment was insincere, not meeting genuine needs. It's 1979. A lot of people, young people were in drug trouble, looking for something. Many of them had no skills and could be called irresponsible. Young people wanted something simple, something worthwhile. I had to show them they could change their karma a Buddhist and Hindu term meaning self-caused inevitability, which is not right, but that's what the article says. To do so meant to take responsibility for their own lives. I had to show them enlightenment came from within. So he began in 1968. We rebuilt the Zen Center in 1979, quite a beautiful place. Um, I, was, I still have lots of friends from that era. The seven years I was there, I talked to pretty regularly, and um, many of them are Zen teachers in their own own right in different places around the country. Um, so for me, it was a very, very pivotal, very, very pivotal time. It really set me on the path of Dharma. Um, during that time. I remember the first long session I ever did was August 1969 at a place called the Gratwick Place out in the country. And everybody's, almost everybody's first session is, is really challenging, it's really difficult. 
And we just kept, you know, I remember the first session, I just kept thinking about, how can I get out of here and, and have ice cream? Because <laughs> <clears throat> there was this ice cream place that was on the way to, back, back on the way out and on the way back, people would stop at Meisensol's ice cream. So my mind was just, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of here. Somehow, I stayed through my first session. Um, the Kyosaka was used very lightly at that time, but somehow, because of the community, because of the Roshi, because of something, I just, I stayed. Um, Roshi Kaplow was very ethical, extremely meticulous about ethics. And one of the hallmarks of his lineage is, um, with one, one exception, with two exceptions, <laughs> you know, over the course of 50 years, things, things happen. Uh, by and large, the lineage is extremely meticulous and very, very ethical. Um, and he inspired me to both the aspiration for awakening and the uh, uh, that, it, that it took determination, that it took perseverance, that it took, you know, everything you got, and meticulous um, consideration of others. So he himself had great integrity, great determination. I mean, you know, from partly from my vantage point now, partly from my vantage point earlier, to actually try to start a whole community where there were two or three hundred people coming in all the time at age 56 when you're about ready to retire mm-hmm. takes, takes uh, stamina and faith and many other things. During Sushin, he would read from uh, Basui, the letters of Basui. They're in uh, Three Pillars of Zen. They're quite inspiring, really talking about the nature of mind. Talking about, you know, in order to be awakened, you have to see your own mind. You have to turn your, your awareness into on your awareness and see the nature of mind. And he would love to talk about Hakuin, Hakuin Zenji. Uh, Philip Polsky had written the first, done the first translation of some of Hakuin's letters. And he was also very fiery. Hakuin used to say, just sitting around quietly is like taking a bunch of dead cow heads and trying to get them to eat by stuffing their mouths full of grass. Hakuin used to say that, that Zazen in activity was a thousand times better than Zazen in stillness. So, and Roshi Kaplow used to say when he was in um, Sogenji or Hoshenji that they all not only would use the Kyosako a lot, which we don't use at all here, they would yell and shout at people. And he said there were lots of, of dogs underneath the Zendo because the Zendo was on a platform, so all these feral dogs would live underneath the Zendo and have dog fights. And they were in the, in the city. So they had traffic and they had dog fights and they had yelling in the zendo and it was not like what we think of as a zendo, harmonious and calm and quiet. He said it was extremely dynamic. Very, very lively. And in a way, I think, while I love our particular environment and our, our lovely, calm, serene place, in a way it does a, a disservice. Uh, when we were at ZCLA, you know, ZCLA was right in the middle of the city and there were traffic accidents and there were, you know, cars and gunshots and Marachi music and everything all happening all around us during Sashin. So you had to really learn to practice in the midst of 
chaos, which I think has got some advantages in its own, own side. Um, Roshi Kaplow was uh, an ardent vegetarian. He had stomach problem, problems for much of his life and was very uh, interested in diet. Um, he used to say, uh, pistols for two never kill more people than tea and toast. Pistols for two means dueling, you know, you've got pistols for two. And then um, back when he was on, uh, he was reading all these 19th century um, culture purists, he, was, he would uh, quote things like that or say things like that. He was an ardent vegetarian, and he wrote a book called uh, To Cherish All Life. So quoting again, anyone familiar with the numerous accounts of the Buddha's extraordinary compassion and reverence for living beings, for example, his insistence that his monks strain the water they drink lest they inadvertently cause death of any microorganisms, could never believe that he would be indifferent to the sufferings of domestic animals caused by their slaughter of food. Ultimately, the case for shunning animal flesh does not rest on what the Buddha allegedly said or didn't say. What it does rest on is our innate moral goodness, compassion, and pity, which, when liberated, lead us to value all forms of life. It is obvious, then, that willfully to take life, or through eating of meat indirectly, to cause others to kill, through the eating of meat indirectly to cause others to kill, runs counter to the deepest instincts of human beings. So he was uh, quite, quite adamant. He used to say uh, willy-nilly a lot. Willy-nilly. Willy-nilly kind of means, you know, well, if you're not really watching, just willy-nilly, you end up in a place you didn't expect. Um, sort of random happenstance. They used to say grist for the mill a lot. Um, <coughs> grist for the mill is an old 18th century term. You know, grist was any kind of, of grain that they would grow, that they would take to the mill to be uh, ground up for flour. So we used to say grist for the mill. In his, uh, again, this is uh, from like the 70s probably. In his book, Zen, Dawn in the West, Roshi Kaplow writes that it's his job to take away much that is foreign to your true nature. The sticky beliefs, the chesty opinions, petty rationalizations, illusory ideals, and deluded thoughts, all of which imprison you as in a cocoon. Chesty opinions means you're kind of proud, sticking your chest out. Archaic term. And then he, he also talks about one of the last quotes here. A small master hides themselves in the mountains. A great master hides themselves in the marketplace. 
So what is um, Dharma transmission? What is it that is passed on? So Roshi Kaplow is part of a Soto Rinzai mixed lineage, just like we are. Uh, Roshi Kaplow studied with teachers who were ordained in the Soto tradition, but who also practiced in the Rinzai tradition. Uh, they used koans, shikantaza, all the different approaches. We are in a, an eclectic tradition that goes way back. But what is transmission? What is it that's transmitted from one generation to the next? Because Roshi Kaplow was uh, studied in Japan. He studied under two well-known, at least in this country, well-known uh, Roshis, uh, Dain Harada and then Yasutani, Hakuin Yasutani Roshis. And he did not receive Dharma transmission from either of them after 13 years. He said that um, he and Yasutani Roshi had a falling out over um, whether, they should trans- whether they should chant the Heart Sutra in English or in Japanese, whether they should you know, anglify <clears throat> the rituals. But I suspect it was two opinionated, grumpy old guys who just couldn't get along after a while and just were critical and and so they had a, a split. Someone asked Roshi Kaplow years later, he said, well, if Ro- Yastani Roshi walked into the room right now, what would you do? He said, I would put my palms together <clears throat> and sincerely bow with apology for my blindness. Every new teacher is inadequate. In a way, we could say everybody is inadequate because compared to what we could know, we know very little. Compared to, to what our ancestors, the, the archetypal uh, ancestors in our lineage, we have practiced very little. Compared to the, the depths of mind that the sutras and a lot of the great writings talk about, we understand very little. So every teacher begins and perhaps even ends inadequate. And teaching is not about, as I often say, I know something here, I know the answer to this koan, and if you too knew the answer to this koan, you would be Relieved, happy, free, whatever. And so guess what's in my mind? And that is not transmission. That's not even teaching. So in Dharma, especially in the Zen tradition, it's not about, okay, the the teacher has got something here, and when you get that same something there, you will be then authorized. I think it's a very different matter. So transmission is a matter of trust. It's a matter of knowing someone. It's a matter of, uh, I think, integrity. It's a matter of, is there a grounding in direct experience so that you can talk about 
the sutras and the teachings from your own direct, you tasted something directly. And so it's not, you're not just talking intellectually about the Dharma, but you can actually feel and know what are these people pointing at? Inadequately, incompletely, and yet with confidence. That's what the foundation of faith is based on, I think. We have an experience. That experience, of course, disappears because every experience that comes goes, and yet it leaves us with a residue of confidence and a residue of faith because we've touched something. So transmission is different in different places. We could say people like Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie, perhaps Adyashante, and I'm sure there's lots of more people out there, um, are usually called uh, Pradika Buddhas. That is, they, they heard the truth and real, had a realization about the truth, but hadn't gone through, at least traditionally, a whole lot of training about how do you face all of these problems and how, what's, the, what's the, the container that allows you to hold other people. I think these days that container is, is very different than it was in the old days. So, Roshi Kaplow um, wrote the Three Pillars of Zen. He was invited to start teaching. He had a small teaching group. And it grew. And it grew. And it grew. And it grew. Until he had students all over the world. Sinners all over the world. So in a way, transmission is not just something, I give you this, but it also is, well, is the universe call something forth? So the universe is a way, in a way it's a backward transmission. We need somebody to occupy this role and we're going to pull you into it. So in a way, it's not, you know, somebody in the past gives you something in the present, which you then give into the future, but rather it's the future is calling. The future, the world is calling you into your position. We are products of our times. So there's this transmission by students, there's the transmission by teachers, there's also a confidence in oneself. Dan uh, Brown, when he used to come here, used to say he was very happy to be here because we were a lineage, a lineage tradition. That we had ancestors, that we had uh, people that we looked up to. There's been a little break in that, that connection because of the tra- change from Japan to, to America. We don't have the, 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 the deep connections that were we embedded in a culture we would have with, uh, with the forebearers. But, you know, when people like Kaplo and Maizumi Roshi and Harada Roshi and other people, when you're there in your hearts, then of course you're connected what's there. So transmission is an acknowledgement, a faith, a trust, a confidence. It's a, an embodiment. It's 
a affirmation that the first of the four bodhisattva vows is deeply in one's heart. And it's a calling forth. We never know where we're going to end up. We never know how it's going to look. We never know. We never know. We never know. And we step one step into the unknown, one step into the unknown, one step into the unknown. And we may have some idea, we may think that we know where it's going to end up or how it's going to unfold, but really we don't. It's really a guessing. It's really a mystery. Basui has a line which Roshi Kaplow used to say. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember here. And with your hands thrown high into the air, take one step into the primordial void of your own true nature. Something like that. Into not knowing. Into not knowing. One step from the top of a hundredfold pole. We know the pole, but take one more step into the unknown, into the groundless. So, transmission is partly that willingness to take that step. Don't know how it's going to go. Another aspect of working with Harada Roshi, working with uh, Kaplow, you know, even though it was so many years ago that I, I really knew Roshi Kaplow, I think that there is a, a heart connection. That's what they mean by a root teacher. It's, it's a connection with the root of your being. And that heart connection with their root connects with their root, connects with the previous roots, connects with the previous roots, connects with the roots, with the roots, with the roots. So the, the heart connection from the root of your being to the root of someone else's, not just in the personality sense, but in, a, in an essence sense wakes something up in you. And that waking up and that expression with the first <clears throat> with bodhicitta awakening for the benefit of all beings is transmission. The other person who has been of great influence in our tradition here is Shoto Harada Roshi. And I'll just say a couple things about him. Uh, Harada Roshi was a uh, temple, his, his family was a temple family. He grew up in a Soto, Soto uh, Rinzai family? Rinzai family. And he was not at all interested in Dharma or Buddhism. He wanted to become a lawyer, he wanted to become a psychologist. And he says, it's, it's written up, I think, in Morning Dewdrops of the Mind, if you're interested, that one day he was out traveling to the city and he saw this person who was, had a glow. And he was just sitting on a, uh, a bus reading a book. And he became so intrigued with this person that when he got off the bus, he followed him <clears throat> into a, a temple. And that person t 
turned out to be uh, Mumon Roshi, his teacher. And he said that, that from that time when he recognized that glow of Mumon Roshi, he was called to practice. And he went and, and entered the training monastery, Shofukuji. Had a number of experiences. And then about, what, 30 years ago? 30, 30 years ago, he inherited the temple uh, Sogenji in Okayama. And a fellow student of his, a fellow student with him, of Mumon Roshi, uh, Chisan, Priscilla Stordant, he asked her if she would come and join him, if the two of them together could, could work and, and build a place that Westerners could come to. And so they moved to Soginji. She was his translator. Um, and he began doing a training in Japan, which according to Tom Kirshner, our friend in Japan, who knows all these Roshi stories, he says it was, it was unique in modern Japan. And what was unique is he would start doing session once a month. He would do a seven-day session, seven full days. And before and after the session, he would do kind of a half session. And then there was a week off just to work. And so almost year-round, there would be 12 long sessions, 12 o session, and then there would be 24 co session, several days before or after. And the, the essential difference was he didn't do Teisho during the co-session, but he did do Teisho in the O-session. And he would see people in the Rinzai style, everybody worked on koans. And to work on a koan, you would go in to see Harada Roshi, and uh, you'd present your koan. Go in, you do your bows, present your koan, get some interaction with him, and leave. So those meetings could be very uh, vigorous and very fast. So when he was younger, when he was, Roshi was younger, he would see people during Osishin sometimes three times a day. Present yourself. Present yourself. Present yourself. Present yourself. And to present oneself with clarity, presence, to, to present oneself with confidence, present oneself with empty, present oneself uh, with fully engaged, and do the koan, that could be seen just quickly, quickly. How you walk in, how you bow, how you, how you sit down, reveals your state of mind. Always. So how people leave their shoes around here reveals their state of mind. Sometimes you can see people who have got their shoes half off and they're already someplace else and so the shoes are, are disheveled or not, not in alignment. But to actually align your shoes, to pay attention to the whole process of taking your shoes off. So that, that meticulous uh, way is the, 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 the Soto school tends to emphasize that, the Rinzai school tends to emphasize the, the wholehearted, direct, vibrant inter interaction. 
Well, we, um, Chosen and I were at ZCLA for uh, a number of years. Chosen was there longer than I was. And in, we moved up here in the early 80s. And around 1991, I got restless and was looking for somebody else to do Sishen with. I think there have been some, some problems at ZCLA or some problems with one of the teachers there, and I felt like I wanted to take a step away. And so I looked in the Northwest Dharma News. It was a newspaper at that time, and, or a booklet magazine. And I saw Harada Roshi's picture, and I said, no, maybe this is the person. And um, it was 1990, 1991. And it w- so I went to his first or second session in this country. Um, and I was, I was hooked. So over the next 25 years, I would go to session and very frequently, maybe 60, 70 weeks of session. And Chosen came to session with Harada Roshi many times also. So in a way... Kaplow influenced us at the root, but Harada Roshi, at least certainly for me, Harada Roshi influenced me much more in terms of spiritual practice and engagement and lively functioning and even the container. So from ZCLA, we used to do orioki, you know, Zendo style orioki, we'd set with three bowls and had servers. And, but her, at Sogenji, <clears throat> they would do a much more uh, abbreviated style. So they would do the kind that we're doing now, which you just have your own bowls, you unwrap them, you serve yourself, you wrap them back up. And you don't, there's lots of detail and ritual that's missing from the Soto. So that style of, of vigorous engagement is always at least impacted me, feeling like Hirata Roshi used to say, it is really good to be able to do things other people can't do. That is, you have developed yourself in some way that there's a, a skill that you have that is not one that everybody else can do. And he used to have, when he was younger, enormous stamina enormous stamina. Hardly sleep. He would do sanzen three times a day. He would do dharma talks. He would then have public meetings he would go to. He would just be on and on and on and on and on. He took care of the old Roshi that preceded him at Sogenji at night. Enormous stamina. Enormous stamina. Just give himself completely, completely, completely over and over again. So he's a very, very moving and inspiring person. And the Dharma that we have here is, of course, contains elements from Kaplow Roshi, from Aizumi Roshi, from Gimpo Roshi, from Harada Roshi, from Chisan Roshi, plus all the other teachers that we've had come through here all the Vajrayana and Tibetan teachers. And it all has resulted in this, 
Because that's the way karma is. All of our entire karma results in this. People often ask, well, where will you go when you die? Well, if you look carefully, every single other part of you is already dead. And this is the afterlife. So here's where you go. And when this is dead, here's where you go. Because here is the result. It's the afterlife of every single other life and every single other thing you've lived. Here's where you go. Here's where you go. How could you go anywhere else? I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. So anyhow, we have, we have great, we have very, 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 very blessed, very fortunate to have all of these wonderful contacts with uh, great Dharma teachers in so many different traditions. And I hope that all of you will <clears throat> be able to share that and unfold the Dharma in your unique way. The Dharma, we are never, ever, ever, ever finished learning. I'm, I'm as, one of my slideshows, I always used Michelangelo's um, quote at age 85 or 90, I am still learning. So I think uh, it is true with all of our previous teachers, it's true now, it will always be true, that the deeper we go, the deeper it gets. The further we go, the more we can see the possibility. So, every teacher is inadequate compared to the immensity of the unknown mystery. And here we are. So I hope all of you are inspired in your own way and really unfold the Dharma and help other people. Lots of ways. Thank you.